Good morning again. Let's pray one more time. God, as we have uh, sat in silence, stood in silence before you, uh, we continue uh, in that way of listening. Help us to be attentive to your word, to your will, and to your way. Give us ears to hear and hearts to see well as we open the scriptures. Give us hearts that are good soil in which your word may be planted, and through that grow things that bring you glory and that bring us joy. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate from your word in any way, may they be quickly forgotten. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And the Oscar goes to. And the Oscar goes to. In 1993, the Academy Award for Best Picture went to a movie starring, among others, Clint Eastwood, Gene Hackman, Morgan Freeman. The storyline focused on the character played by uh, Eastwood, William Will Money, a retired outlaw who was drawn out of retirement for one last job, a job that offered a big payday and a job that Money really needed because his farm was failing. He was raising two kids alone. He was running out of cash. Things didn't ultimately go as money planned with this bounty job, however. Not only did money end up killing two men that he had not originally planned to kill, but his good friend Ned Logan, played by Morgan Freeman, whom money had invited into this job with him, also ended up being killed, and not only killed, but tortured before he was killed. At the end of the movie, Will, Will Money does return home, But he returns home with a bounty now on his head. And so he can't stay at home. He can't stay where he had buried his wife who had died several years earlier. He could not stay where he had planned to live out his days in peace. Instead, he was forced to pack up the kids and to head west to flee. Now having lost not only his wife and her forgiveness of him, but also his own self-forgiveness. He had done some terrible things. He was responsible just recently, directly or indirectly, for his own good friend's death. He had become what he had not wanted to become, not planned to become, what he had already repented of, what he thought he was free from. He had become a condemned creature. He had, in one sense, lost his salvation. He was, as the title of the movie so aptly stated, unforgiven. And some of us may at times in our lives have felt in some ways that same way or like we have not been forgiven. That for some reason or another we could not be forgiven or that we'd done something or maybe we'd become someone who could not be forgiven, who would not be forgiven. But where would a person, where might someone like you or I get such an idea? Where might such thoughts or ideas come from? Some people's souls are just so sensitive to such things, whether by nature or nurture, 
Whether due to temperament or upbringing or teaching or experience, people live with varying degrees of guilt, insecurity, fear, doubt, self-consciousness, worry, anxiety. Can God really forgive me? Will God really forgive me? Am I forgivable? Is this thing that I've done forgivable? Will God forgive me? We know that we struggle to forgive other people. And so we know that forgiveness and forgiving is hard. We long to be forgiven by people who will not forgive us or who maybe cannot forgive us because maybe they don't have the emotional or the mental or the spiritual resources or will to do that. And we, many of us in many ways, in varying degrees, imagine or have imagined at some point or some points in our lives, maybe in a valley, maybe on a hilltop, maybe in a valley, that God may not forgive us for something for some reason that we just don't know or understand. Where would we get such an idea? We know that the Bible talks about an unforgivable sin. Jesus, we think, talked about an unpardonable sin. Have we committed that sin? Have you ever wondered that? Have I done something that was so grievous that God may not forgive me. In the book of 1 John, we read, if you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death because there is sin that does lead to death. The author of the book of Hebrews wrote, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift salvation, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and then who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. It is impossible, the author of the book of Hebrews wrote in chapter 6. Fast forward to chapter 10. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. We read in the Bible, the book of Hebrews. And then there's Jesus who did refer to an unforgivable or unpardonable sin for which there's no hope, which may have been the most disturbing statement of all of Jesus' words in the Scriptures, in the Gospels. And we come to that passage this morning in our study of the Gospel of Mark. Last Sunday morning we read from Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. I skipped over several verses, though we just didn't have time to touch on them last week. We're going to look at those in particular this morning. But we're going to read that whole section from Mark chapter 3 again that we read last week. Beginning at verse 20, listen closely. This is the Word of God. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that Jesus and his disciples were not even able to eat. When Jesus' family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law, who came down from Jerusalem, said, He's possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons he's driving out demons. 
So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying it up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. These little parables Jesus tells. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin, Jesus said. He said this, Mark wrote, because they were saying he has an impure spirit, an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call Jesus. A crowd was sitting around Jesus, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers, Jesus asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And our focus this morning is going to be primarily on verses 28 and 29 in that passage. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Never in the book of Acts, never in all of the letters of the New Testament, the epistles, does the phrase, truly I tell you, occur. But over and over and over and over in the Gospels, and more than a dozen times in Mark's Gospel, we find these words on the lips of Jesus. And when Jesus says these words, truly I tell you, truly I say to you, he uses his phrase to signify particularly serious admonitions. This is serious, folks, he's saying. Listen up. You really need to know this. This is going to be on the exam. This is going to be on the test. If you miss everything else, hear this. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. There is a sin for which there is no forgiveness. There is an unpardonable sin. What is that sin? Have I committed that sin? Have you committed that sin? Have we committed that sin? Has the church committed that sin? And if we has, does God know? Did God see? Did God find out? Certainly God knows. Will God forgive us? And we, many of us, maybe in varying degrees, imagine or have imagined at some time or some point or in some way that God may not forgive us. We have been steeped in worry or fear or anxiety or at least uncertainty. We can't even, I can't even meet my own expectations. I can't live up to my own outwardly stated expectations, standards. Certainly I cannot live up to God's. Certainly, I can't live up to my own standards in public and in interactions. How much more I can't live up to them internally in my heart. 
And so what is that sin of which Jesus speaks or that category of sin? Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Does our sin, my sin, your sin fit into that category? What exactly was Jesus talking about when he said blaspheming the Holy Spirit? When Matthew and Luke in their Gospels record Jesus saying these words, they place these words of Jesus in the midst of blocks of Jesus teaching and saying similar things. But Mark places this saying of Jesus in a narrative, in the midst of his interaction with people. Jesus had been driving out demons. Teachers of the law came down from Jerusalem, and they who had been watching Jesus, following Jesus, tracking Jesus, observing Jesus, declared, he's casting out demons by the prince of demons. Everyone was clear that Jesus had been casting out demons. That was right there for everyone to see. They declare he's casting out demons by the prince of demons, by the power of the devil. That's how he's doing this. And that marks it, Mark informs his readers in verse 30. That was the great sin of the teachers of the law. They claim that Jesus was someone that he wasn't. Worse, they claim that Jesus was Satan. They claim that the one who Mark so clearly showed in chapter 1 was filled with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, was now acting in and through the power of the evil one. In chapter 1, the opening testimony of John the baptizer was that one more powerful than himself would come, one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit was coming. And Jesus shows himself now to be that more powerful one by continuing to bind up demons, to cast out demons. Thus, blaspheming the Holy Spirit involves confusing or switching what is good with what is evil by declaring evil what is good and good what is evil to blaspheme the holy spirit is to deny the presence and the power and the authority of the holy spirit where the holy spirit really is and in whom the holy spirit really is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to attribute to Satan what is of God and to attribute to God what is of Satan. To deny the presence of God's Spirit in Jesus. To deny that Jesus was God. Such a poor person, according to Jesus, is hopelessly lost. Either unable or unwilling to tell the difference or acknowledge the difference between darkness and light. Between light and darkness. And while we may hear these words and think of pagans and people outside of the Christian faith, Mark tells us a different story because of where and how he places this serious admonition of Jesus. Mark puts these words in a narrative, as I've said, and in fact in one of his literary sandwiches so that the reader can't escape who Jesus is talking about and who Jesus is talking to. Verse 20 is the introduction. Verse 21, into the picture come Jesus' friends or those in his inner circle who are attempting to seize, we talked about last week, to arrest him, to take him away. They're later on described more specifically as Jesus' family. Then Mark jumps to teachers of the law who are trying to trap Jesus. And then in Mark 
Uh, in verse 31, Mark jumps back to Jesus' family. Jesus' friends, Jesus' family try to seize him. Religious leaders, teachers of the law, religious people, spiritual people try to trap Jesus. And then back to Jesus' family trying to take him away to silence him. There's something wrong with him. He's out of his mind. And it's right there in the middle of those people and about those people that Jesus offers this very serious warning. He's not warning the pagans off there somewhere out of the picture who've never heard of him. He's warning those who know the scriptures. He's warning those who have witnessed his presence, his power. He's warning those who are on the inside. He's warning those who most likely ought to know. He's warning those who seem to, for some specific reason, not want to know, who flip a switch, who turn things off. The church. He's warning the church. And that's the way Mark's earliest readers understood this. As a message not to others over there or out there or back there or way over there, but to us, to the church. And the implication in Jesus' words is of repeated habitual action because of the tense of Jesus' words. It suggests, Jesus suggests a fixed position, a firm decision, and not merely skepticism, not merely doubt or uncertainty for a moment, but an ongoing commitment to seeing things a certain way. In Mark's gospel, the doubt the simple doubt or uncertainty of honest inquirers is actually always honored. And that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Rather, what places a person in mortal danger here is not uncertainty, but rather deliberate rejection of the God at work in and through Jesus. And thus this passage functions as a dire warning to all readers of the seriousness of our response to Jesus. How will we see him? How will we hold him? What value will his words have in our lives? To what will we attribute to him? Have I committed the unpardonable, unpardonable sin? Have you? Might God not forgive you or me for something? I've known lots of people. I know my own self. I know my own heart. I know the worst inside and out. I've seen in the church, in the church, people who have killed their spouses, people who have committed fraud, leaders in the church who have embezzled money from their workplaces. We see all sorts of sin around us. Fornication, pornication, addiction of various sorts, wasted gifts, wasted talents, people who offend their parents, people who have blown their inheritance in the pursuit of wild living. We've known people who have cheated on everything from their wives to their taxes. Are any of these the unforgivable sins? We've known people who have driven themselves home after a colonoscopy, who have operated heavy machinery while taking Tylenol, people who have 
fudged on their financial records a bit. People who have cheered on the Los Angeles Lakers during a pandemic. The message of this passage, though, is that God will forgive. That God does forgive. It's a serious warning. But nowhere in this passage, if we look closely, does Jesus condemn anyone. It is a serious, serious warning. But nowhere does Jesus condemn in judgment anyone. Mark places this saying as a warning, not as a condemnation, and not as a cause for anxiety. Rather, the opposite is in some ways true. Anyone who is worried about having committed the sin against the Holy Spirit has not yet committed it by definition. For having anxiety of having done so is evidence of the potential for repentance, of the desire to be reconciled, of the concern about wrong and right, of wanting to be in good standing with the one who is acknowledged as Lord. If you experience contrition and a desire to be done with your sin, Jesus will forgive you. Regardless what it is. Regardless how it is. Regardless who knows and who doesn't know. Preoccupation with the warning of verse 29 also must not be allowed to obscure the good news of verse 28. Which goes like this. Truly I tell you, People can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven by the great forgiver. All. Say that with me. All. Say that with me at home. All. People can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. There is no record in the Scriptures of anyone asking God for forgiveness and being denied it. I'll say that again. There is no instance or example in all of the Scriptures of someone someone asking God to forgive them and them being denied it. God in Christ is in the business of forgiving. He doesn't like sin. He doesn't smile on sin. He doesn't condone sin, but there's no example in all of the scriptures of sin that God will not forgive, save that one. To deny who he was, to deny who his son was, to deny his son's intentions, to deny his son's role, and bringing about his kingdom here on earth today. Jesus always offers forgiveness, even if and when a person continues to struggle with sin continues to struggle in sin. And I want to say that again. Because some of us may be driven by the pressures and the suffering of this pandemic. Go back to the same sin over and over and over. Are sucked back in, drawn back in, hobble back in, fall back in, slip back in. And the message of this passage is Jesus always offers forgiveness even to people who struggle with sin. And most of us do. Jesus says all of the sins of your youth will be forgiven. 
All of the sins of your old age will be forgiven. All of the sins of your mind, all of the sins of your heart, all of the sins of your lips, all of the sins of your hands will be forgiven. All of them, Jesus says, can be forgiven. The sins of idolaters, the sins of backsliders like Peter, will be forgiven, can be forgiven, will be forgiven in Christ the Lord in and through his cross. How do we know this? In Mark's gospel, they lower a paralyzed man, some friends of his, through the roof to put him right in front of Jesus, you remember. Because they wanted to get him as close as they could to the one who heals both body and soul. And you remember Jesus doesn't really pay attention to his paralyzed state, but rather says, your sins are forgiven because that was what was most important. Go on to the next passage in Mark's gospel. And Jesus forgives Levi. Come, you, follow me. I know you. All your stuff, all your garbage, all your past, all your present, the inclinations of your heart. You, come, follow me. And you will be forgiven. There is no doubt about who God wants to forgive. For God so loved the world that he sent his son into the world. That whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. There's no asterisk for those who have committed certain sins. God's intention is to forgive all. John in his first letter wrote, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, but if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just. He will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All. Thanks be to God. He goes on to write three chapters later, perfect love casts out all fear. If you've ever been afraid that God may not forgive you for something that you've done, you've become, you've said, long time ago, recently, in private, in public, that needs to be banished from your mind today. Because in Christ, you are forgiven. From the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 1. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet he did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, which means the Lord saves, because he will save his people from their sins. Because he will save his people from their sins. The Son of Man did not come to condemn the world, 
but that through him they, we, might be saved. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we confess our sin, each of us individually, privately, together with others, as a body, as a nation. We confess the variety and the spectrum, the height, the depth, depth, the breadth, the width of our sin and our sinfulness. It's through and through. It permeates our hearts. It permeates our minds. It permeates our actions. It permeates our words. We confess this and claim your promise that in you every sin may be forgiven. We acknowledge you as the one who forgives, the one who casts out demons, the one who has the power to save, the one who has the power to heal. We confess and profess you to be Savior of the world, who has been, who is, and who will be glorified with the Father and with the Spirit, now and forever. Amen.